0: Hello and welcome to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. Conversations with inspiring business people throughout the three counties of Herefordshire, Worcestershire and Gloucestershire. And now it's time for today's episode. I hope you enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to the Thriving Three Counties podcast. I'm Dan Barker and this week it's a best of episode where we get the chance to bring you one of our favourites from the back catalogue. This week, it's episode 14 with Jack Ratton, which was titled Give Yourself Permission. I hope you enjoy the show. He's an entrepreneur, a coach, a mentor, and he's the founder of Bloom Space, a co-working space in Malvern. Uh, He is Jack Rutton. Hi Jack, how are you doing? Hi Dan. (laughs) You you alright? Yes, thank you. Good, excellent. It's been a while. (laughs) I haven't seen you for a while. Yeah, it's nice to be here. Yeah, uh, yeah, no, thanks for coming over to do this. Uh, Just before we get started, people can find you at Bloom. dot space.
1: That's it. Yeah, that's yep. the URL.
0: Yeah, it's a good, a, a great URL. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, yeah, Bloom. dot space. Uh, you're on LinkedIn and uh, you're a big Twitterer, I think. Yeah,
1: we've got a Twitter following uh, and Instagram too. So.
0: Okay. Yeah. So yeah. Bloom
1: Incubator on Instagram
0: and Bloom Morven on Twitter. The other ones. Yeah. People to find you. Cool. Okay. Right. Let's get started because you, you've done loads of stuff. You sent me a bio, and uh, I don't think I
1: quite realise just how much stuff you've done. Yeah, <laughs> over I, the years, I, like a lot of entrepreneurs, I don't seem to be able to do one thing at a time, and there seems to be multiple new things happening, and, and they kind of run uh, concurrently. So yeah, excellent, yeah, lots okay. of things, cool. Okay, so uh, you're not originally from this area, I don't think. No, you, or? Kent originally. I grew up Kent. in Whitstable um, okay. on the north coast and then uh, went off to London to study biochemistry at University College London. Uh, okay. Didn't make a particularly good biochemist, but I I, did, <laughs> I, I stuck at it for, uh, what was it, nine years from studying to finishing work at UCL. I, right. I used to... Um, work at full-on laboratory work with, you know, white coat. And I was studying for a PhD, actually, uh, in, right, okay. in neuroscience. So, um, yeah, I was a full-on academic and university scientist for a good long while. But towards the end of that, uh, that, that stint, I realized that I wasn't that interested in being a biochemist for much longer. So I right. of spent my final year in the lab not in the lab very much, um, <laughs> and researching other types of business and okay. uh, or other other things to do. And business was the main thing I was interested in. Um, okay, it, it probably it, it's funny. I was thinking about this the other day. I, my the first ever business I had was when I was about ten or eleven or twelve, and I used to make um, make earrings and jewelry right. um, because. My mum started a fabric shop when I was about four or so years old um, with a friend of hers. And she opened this shop in the town in Winston. In fact, it's still there. It's called uh, Whitstable Fabric Shop. Right. It's in Harbour Street. Um, And uh, so I kind of grew up around retail and and, and small business and spent a lot of time in this shop. Right. And then... As I became a little bit older and I sort of, my mum sort of encouraged me to have a hobby business, I used to go to charity shops and buy strings of beads, cut the string and take all the beads off and then make them into (laughs) jewellery, which I then sold in her shop. So (laughs) I kind of, at the age of kind of 11, I had a a fairly sensible income um, for an 11 year old. So yeah, yeah, I got a taste for it then I suppose. And then grew things, um, yeah, once I'd, spent a lot of time as a scientist and then went back into business. Okay. And, and, and in fact, uh, the, um, it stemmed from um, back, back in sort of 20, 2006, 2007, UCL started a department called UCL Advances, which was part of the enterprise division there at UCL. And the department was an outward focusing non-academic department. And so when I was studying, um, they were running a thing called the London Entrepreneurs Challenge. And right. anybody, who was a student in London at the time, could go um, and go to these talks. I remember they were kind of a couple of hours long on a Tuesday night, um, and they were run by the, the the beginnings of that department. It was only three or four people at the time, but mm-hmm. there's was, there was one particular chap, Tim Barnes, who's kind of particularly enthusiastic and excitable person and uh, <laughs> got me quite inspired by the idea of starting a business and yeah. with some friends. Um, I started uh, a company called Third Minds, which we, we set up as a proper limited company and we entered this entrepreneur's challenge. Yeah. Third Minds was about helping the charity sector with um, highly skilled consultants who came from top sector universities like UCL, Oxford and Cambridge. Mm-hmm. And the idea was that we, would, we, we mentored them. So we, we found them consultancy projects in charities right. and then we mentored them to do those projects, because obviously, as, as new graduates, they didn't really have the skills, but they had the um, knowledge and they had the um, intellectual capability. So we we then mentored them in how you you do that work. Mm-hmm. So a couple of the people involved were experienced charity sector executives, and so um, it worked quite well. It was quite a cool company for for a few years. We did it was all always done alongside full time jobs. The four of us that were involved all worked full time. Yeah. It was it was interesting, and we entered the London Entrepreneur Challenge with it, and um, kind of got inspired by the idea of startup businesses. Yeah. And then, um, then I I left UCL uh, two thousand um, and seven time, and went off and started working at, um, quite a bit in the charity sector. And I actually set up a couple of social enterprises, one of which still exists, right. um, which is a. Uh, an, an organisation that basically helped the charity sector not to get ripped off by IT providers. Because at the time, um, the third sector, as it was used to be called, we used to be often referred to, that w- was, was being, would, they'd often go to commercial IT providers for their IT provision and, it, and it, they'd get ripped off because the commercial IT providers would see them as a cash cow, but also know that there wasn't a lot of um, understanding of IT within the charity necessarily, okay, right. and sell them things they just didn't need. Like, yeah. I remember one charity spent £9,000 on a server. Well, they didn't even need a server, let alone right. a £9,000 server. <laughs> so, um, you know, things like that we, we yeah. would sort of try and, and, and help them with. So, and that that still exists um very cool but the other thing i was doing sort of as i said earlier i seemed to do a lot of things all at once so (laughs) at the same time i was setting up i used to work as a volunteer manager in a in a community center in one of the most deprived wards in the country in summerstown between kings cross and um euston um in fact if you go from euston to St. Pancras, you walk through Summerstown. Um, it's where the Francis Crick Institute now is. And the some the community centre right behind that um is where I set up a community cafe. Um, right, yeah, well. so um if we scroll back slightly to my last couple of years at UCL, <laughs> I was actually hoping to to start a restaurant at that time. Oh really? um, <laughs> okay. thank goodness I didn't because it have been a bit of disaster because it was Back in the days when you could just think of a number and then kind of quadruple it and then borrow that amount of money and right, nobody was like, asking okay. you want for, <laughs> and so I nearly did that, um, but but luckily didn't. So so I I'd never started my restaurant, and then and then I started working this community centre, and they they had this defunct cafe, and they wanted to start a community cafe. So I, I launched, I set that up and, and launched that. And in fact, that cafe still exists as well. Oh, and that's cool. been a really nice facility there for the for the people in Town.
0: Right, okay. So, so lots yeah. of sort of uh, charity, non-profit yeah, type a, of things. A, 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 a lot of stuff around social
1: enterprise in particular. Yeah. Uh, quite a strong advocate for social enterprise. I think mm-hmm. that, um, I think most businesses that are run in a, in a sensible way have got some element of social impact. But yeah. I also think that a lot of Uh, non-profit organizations could do social enterprise a lot better and very effectively because the type of income it creates um, is more sustainable than a lot of the charity sector's grant funding and Mm. um, kind of voluntary income that they they raise. And so I think it's a good thing to have in the mix for... The voluntary sector. So yeah. I, did, I, I actually I did start a project. Um, this is when I, I lived in London. Obviously I was li- lived in Camden Town, and lived quite near the market. Um, mm-hmm. And it was at the time when the um, the the post economic crash of two thousand and eight um, was going to uh, impose a lot of funding cuts on on the community and voluntary sector, and a lot of the luncheon clubs that were run by community centres were going to be closed down. Yeah, and I remember the the proposal was that instead of running a luncheon club, councils would provide older people with 14 frozen meals and a microwave, and every two weeks they'd have somebody deliver 14 more frozen meals. And I just thought it was horrendous. So I I sort of thought, well, this is no good. Kind of missing the point. It is, (laughs) isn't it? (laughs) I mean, you know, yeah. I mean, it doesn't need describing how terrible that is. But the... The, the, at the time, it was when the really cool street food markets were kind of emerging and people yeah. would go and spend five, six, seven pounds on some n- nice lunch somewhere. Um, and I lived near Camden Market. And obviously, if anyone's ever visited it, they know there's a really good street food set up there. Mm-hmm. And I thought, well, this is crazy. These community centers have all got decent kitchens. A lot of them have got pr- proper full on commercial kitchens. This is a waste. You know, they're, they're closing down because they're not funded to run a luncheon club anymore, but they've got this facility. So. I put together a, a, a full on plan for running um food businesses out of these kitchens that used them as prep kitchens to sell the food in these street markets and okay. so the the income that that created would uh say for of argument you you've got to make a hundred meals to sell in the street food market yeah if you made one hundred and ten it doesn't really matter it doesn't make too much difference to the to the price of the ingredients, so those mm. ten extra feed the older people at lunchtime. Okay. Um, you could staff the whole thing with volunteers because it's a really nice volunteering opportunity for somebody who's looking to train and get an understanding of how to work in a food business or hospitality. Yeah, and you can fu- you can fund one full time person's job from that who who coordinates everything. They help cook food, coordinate all of that activity, and then run the market stall. Um, yeah. And I took this concept to a number of community centres who looked at me blankly and didn't really understand they just didn't believe what I was saying would, would be, would work. So I thought, well, I've, I've got to sh- prove it. I've got to show that it'll work. Yeah. So I, uh, I, I, arranged a pitch at Camden market. Um, and I bought a piece, <laughs> piece of pork from Booker and I cooked it overnight <laughs> in a community center oven. And I took it to Camden market and sold it with coleslaw and right, bread rolls. Yeah. And, um, funnily enough, it worked and yeah. people came and bought the food. And so we sort of proved the model. Um, and i uh, yeah i sort of used all of that when i i then kind of with the with the uh, community cafe that i set up and some of those concepts so i i was always doing these sort of slightly um uh, test uh, experimental things lots of yeah. different types of business um experimental businesses to try and see how we could um prove something would work for a a a kind of social impact so Mm -hmm. another one that i remember doing was the bassett bakery because i've got a Bassett hound and uh, she was the (laughs) brand for it and the inspiration of course (laughs) um so you know you can imagine being community center volunteering teams, being able to create nice dog biscuits in their kitchens, made <laughs> with human grade food. So it's all safe and you can make something nice for a dog, package it up and sell it in fancy places for quite a lot of money. And yeah. it's quite a nice income stream for the charity and it pays for some of the things they need to do. Simple thing for people to get involved with doing and a nice volunteering opportunity for somebody to have learned all of that. Mm. So that was one and I remember another one with salt scrubs I remember standing on bellsize <laughs> Park High Street outside the uh, budgins there very smart budgins. and we we hired a pitch and sold uh, salt scrubs that, uh, at Christmas right. time that we'd made out of um, uh, olive oil and rock salt uh, uh, and uh, sea salt and uh, salt crystals and and we'd flavored them with lavender and all different things and sold those again another high value product that you can make somewhere like a community center so all these right, were all okay. designed yeah. as like off-the shelf businesses that could be made to work for uh, the community and voluntary sector, or indeed for anybody. Um, so lots of business ideas tested along the way.
0: Yeah, yeah. It's uh, Testing the ideas is, uh, is important,
1: isn't it, for any it business? It is, and, and, and just sort of having a go at it and seeing how it works. And, and, and you know, all of them made money, actually. Um, right, yeah. So that was kind of key. How, how long would you typically test something for? Generally only um, for quite a short period. Um, yeah. Until it had made enough money to cover all its costs and, and prove it was profitable, and then I'd move on to the next one just to just to get right. as much understanding as possible. To so sort of hand that over to the the community. Yeah, once central, it's whatever, proven, you, you know, it, it can mm. be passed on. Um, that was how we operated. That. Um, and
0: how did did they when they took it? Then did they manage to you know carry on with it? Because it, it takes it, a different it was, kind of skill and drive, I think, to then it, want. You know for, for, to then keep selling, doesn't it? It's
1: very, very true, and um, it was very variable. Let's put it that way uh, right. as to yeah. the success, the ongoing success of these things depends on the people involved. But the, the, what it did do was um, so that so the, part of my role there in Camden was I, I ended up working for um, the volunteer center in Camden and running um, well, it uh, I ran a couple of um, programs in mental health units where I was helping people with mental health problems, or with or, or people who wanted to volunteer in mental health setting to, to uh, set up and run decent volunteering programs, and it, it led on to me. Um, being the best practice manager for the borough. And now Camden's got about 3,000 charities registered in the borough. And okay. I worked with about 100 of the smallest ones. And uh. my job was it, was, it was kind of fun, because I had this, one of those little tiny electric cars that were quite for early adopters. <laughs> and I used to drive all around Camden and Westminster um, <laughs> Visiting these charities and, and training and supporting the volunteer managers to run really good volunteering programs in their charities, Right. and uh, it, it was a it was a good fun job, and it and it, it led to me kind of work, developing lots of training programs and understanding how to run workshops and understanding how to do coaching and mentoring with all these different people, yeah. and then I ended up we we ended up running well, the, the volunteer centre was was. Uh, was approached by the mayor's office. Now the mayor at the time was Boris and it was 2011 and they were preparing for the 2012 Olympics. And right at the very last minute, they decided they needed a volunteering team um, (laughs) called the London Ambassadors um, to work for the mayor's office. And so I headed up and then ran the first Olympics volunteer recruitment center in the UK (laughs) that ever happened. Nobody had done it before. And we had this we had this 10 week run uh, in this conference center in Camden town where we processed. I, I led a team it was 16 staff and 84 volunteers and we we processed we did ID checks inductions and sort of processing for two thousand of these Olympic volunteers right um, over this 10 week period in shifts so that was very very exciting and, and kind of um, done very much with just-in-time delivery methods because it was by the mayor's <laughs> office. And um, it was, it was nice great choice. fun. Yeah, I wasn't <laughs> sure it wasn't necessarily <laughs> planned to be like that, but it was. And so it was quite exciting. And then, then it, bizarrely, this job came up. Well, what happened was I, I, I actually bumped into Tim Barnes, the chap I mentioned earlier from UCL Advances. Yeah. Um, and I'd noticed a job uh, come back up at UCL um, in this department Mm-hmm. um f- running running a, a program for um, teaching entrepreneurship to kids and the skill set required for this job was was it was a combination of things and it was a strange combination so you needed to have experience of setting up um, volunteering projects and mm-hmm. big scale volunteering projects and managing volunteers and training and running workshops <laughs> <laughs> Run, running small businesses and and teaching other people about entrepreneurship. Uh, working in a university and understanding of how you work in a university, <laughs> and I had that, and also um, and I, one of the things on the job spec was was uh, ideally experience working on market stalls. <laughs> it like pretty of, much made that, the job. It, here. It, 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 <laughs> it wasn't. They didn't have many applicants <laughs> who takes all the boxes. Let's no. put it really that way. So I went along, got the job, um, and I, my brief was to to make this project. Um, a global project that was my only brief, um, and th- it was a kids entrepreneurship education program called Citrus Saturday. Yeah. The idea being, kids set up a lemonade stand. They learn how to run a business, mm-hmm. and of course, then they go on and they're inspired to do their next business. Um, and it was it, they'd done one London pilot. It was fantastic because it was um, it was an EU interreg funded program, so it was. One of thirteen projects that were run by different organisations, quite a few universities, a couple of public sector bodies, and and, uh, and, and groups across Northwest Europe. So it's Germany, France, Ireland, um, Belgium, mm-hmm. um, and there were three components in the in the UK. One in one in Edinburgh, one in Somerset, and one in London, and so my job was to turned Citrus Saturday into a global program. And basically right. they'd done one London pilot. Right. And over the course of five years, I scaled it up across 16 countries in across Europe and Africa. Wow. Um, I didn't quite get it global, but I got it across <laughs> yeah, Europe and never Africa. Never, never. <laughs> I was pretty, pretty pleased with that. Yeah, yeah. Um, it was actually copied from an American program called Lemonade Day, the founder of which, Michael Holthouse, is this sort of huge Texan chap. And um, <laughs> Tim met him sort of a few years before and, and, and said to him, do you mind if I pinch this idea? And, and they agreed it would be fine if he did because Michael only wanted to work in, in the US. He yeah. wasn't interested anywhere else. Right, yeah. And Tim wanted to launch it in Europe. So off I went and I, I grew this program across Northwest Europe quite quickly because I had all these partners in Germany, France, Belgium and Ireland that we were able to embed it into those partnerships quite well. But the way I thought, well, how am I going to grow this? This has got to scale rapidly. Mm. And, you know, if you look at, Charities like um, or, or charitable projects and, and programs like the ones Young Enterprise run in the UK globally. Mm-hmm. That's called Junior Achievement. Okay. It's from uh, originally an American charity found about 100 years ago. And right. if I remember correctly, they've got about 20,000 staff and 30,000 volunteers. It's taken them 100 years to to get to that point. And I thought, <laughs> well, I can't wait 100 years. So how am I going to make? How am I going to shortcut this and make it go a bit quicker? So I thought, well, I'll make a, I'll design a toolkit and right. a toolkit that. That anyone can use to work with kids. So it's designed for teachers, youth workers, or or, or people uh, running kind of youth programs. Um, and it was a toolkit for them to use to teach kids about business using the lemonade stand model. Okay. So right. that's what I did. I made a series of videos and series of workbooks um, and scaled it by work by giving that package of. Uh, that toolkit of of educational materials to schools and youth clubs across Europe and Africa. um, And we got it into those 16 countries. And in fact, if you go to citrussaturday.org, the website now goes onto our YouTube channel and you get all, you can see all our videos there of, oh, of me cool. in, in Swaziland. In fact, that was the, the African country I got to visit. Oh, um, wow. But it made it into Mozambique and Burkina Faso and a couple of others. And it still exists. The reason I designed it like that was so that it would exist after the funding ended. Cause I was yeah. used to charitable projects that just failed when their funding ends. And it yeah. used to annoy me because you'd see all the value you'd created just disappear once mm. the grant ends, which is mm. just a, not very sustainable or sensible way of creating a project in my opinion. So I thought, well, if I, if I design it as a toolkit, which we then leave with these teachers and youth workers to, to use, they'll be able to carry on using it. And they mm. didn't need funding or money to do it. It it was, the, the toolkit was what they needed to do it along with right, their own okay. energy and, and, and ideas. That's great. And they had training from me on how to do it and from the videos. So great. some places <laughs> all around the world now, there's different Citrus Saturday activity still happening. and That's cool. Yeah, it's good fun. So, so it kind of got me into the, the entrepreneurship world and the sort of enterprise education and support world.
0: How, how like, because when you say, you know, it just rolled off the tongue, like I took it global <laughs> kind of thing. But what does that sort of look like on a... You know, on a day-to-day scale, like when when you you've got a job like that to do, and someone says, "I want you to take it global," like what actually are the first steps? I mean, how do you how did you end up in Swaziland, for example?
1: You know, so deep thought um, was the first thing that was needed. A lot of deep deep thinking about how on earth I do this with very very uh, in a very unstructured um, environment, if you like, because I was mm-hmm. just given a brief. There wasn't a structure around it, and I was. Um, uh, with not huge sums of money you know it wasn't like there was a big pot of money behind it either yeah um, luckily because the Interreg Grant existed and we had the existing partners in there was there was one in Belgium in a beautiful town called Ghent um, mm-hmm. there was there's one in uh, there was one partner in, in Edinburgh in Somerset and then in Cork in Ireland and then uh, in Laval in France in Northern France and, mm-hmm. and another partner in, in germany in castle so there was these groups that would uh, people from each of those those regions it was, it was mainly universities and, and and county councils or or, mm-hmm. or local authorities and so we'd all get together i think it was three times a year to do interreg conferences there was about i don't know 15 or 20 of us and there were these sort of 13 projects that run across it and Citrus Saturday was one of them. And the idea of that inter-ed grant was that we'd all try and run each other's programs in our own regions. So, or right. at least benefit from best practice and benefit from all the learning that went on from running those programs in those regions. So, mm-hmm. for example, in Somerset, there was a, um, the, the, the county council there had set up a co-working space, in fact. Um, right. and, and part of it was to share the knowledge around that because setting up a rural co-working space has its own set of. Um, th- things you need to do to make it successful versus doing one in central London. So right, okay. when we hosted them, we took them around a load of central London co-working spaces and they had learned from that. And then they took some of that back to Somerset and then vice versa. So it, we had these existing natural partners in all those countries. So that yeah, okay. immediately, the starting point. That, that shortcutted it and that, that right. accelerated it a lot at the beginning. Okay, But then it was sort of like, well, how do we get it beyond that? Because um, the ambition was to scale it very rapidly so that we could then Look at getting sponsorship or, or commercial. Um, arrangements with companies that wanted to fund it as a CSR project Mm because for about a thousand pounds you could fund about a thousand kids to learn business skills over a 10-year period so it wasn't expensive per kid but um, to get something done at scale you you know you needed to have infrastructure and groups around and it it Mm. took a lot of designing as you can imagine the toolkit had to be used by teachers to teach entrepreneurship which is not something they're always confident about teaching so I had to work out how to get over that barrier using the toolkit first as well um, but the, the, the it was always about looking for partnerships that was the most important right. part of scaling it so working with Junior Achievement in Swaziland for example was yeah. essential because they had the infrastructure they had the volunteering teams they mm-hmm. had the, uh, the, the, the relationships with the schools and things so I partnered with Junior Achievement or UCL partnered with Junior Achievement mm. And uh, then Junior Achievement delivered the activity with the schools that they work with in Swaziland. Right. But that actual project came about because, um, well, in fact, it, there was a professor, Peter Rose, in, in Edinburgh who came to one of the uh, Edinburgh County Council or Edinburgh City Council, um, Interreg projects saw Citrus Saturday showcased, thought it was a lovely project. He was doing a consultancy project for the Swazi government on behalf of the Commonwealth Secretariat right. <laughs> and suggested it as a project. So the okay. Commonwealth Secretariat funded that trip okay. uh, along yeah. with um, some match funding from UCL. So it was a uh, it was very rapid scale, very yeah. exciting. And I feel very privileged to have been able to go across all these countries yeah. and see how, it, it, what it meant was I'd visited enterprise centers for want of a better generic term, um, but places that work with small business and with entrepreneurship that were run uh, by councils or universities or, or high schools or, or by um Uh, by companies or by you know charities or whatever it was all different flavours of of places that run it but all across Mm -hmm. Europe and Africa and what Mm -hmm. was interesting was looking at the uh, I mean what I always found most interesting was looking at the the similarities because Mm -hmm. you expect things to be different you go to all these places you expect things to be different but what was fascinating was how little was different and how much it was the same well I'll give you an example so if you try and set up a program teaching kids about business with them setting up a lemonade stand in Somerset, yeah. rural Somerset, the yeah. challenges are almost identical to uh, Swaziland uh, as, a, as a rural country. Right. Um, and uh, they involve things like, for example, lack of transport, lack of mm-hmm. uh, consistent 4G or 3G signal, mm-hmm. uh, lack of infrastructure and supply chain around getting hold of like whatever it is they're using to sell the drink in, maybe plastic cups, paper cups, bottles, yeah. whatever it is. Yeah. Lack of supply of citrus fruit. Yeah. Um, you know, the the, the, the the lack of there being a central hub in which to sell it, because if you're right. going to set up a lemonade stand, you need people to there be there to buy it. So yeah. it, the, the parallels were virtually identical across right. these two okay. two places that you'd think they would be very different. So I learned a lot about that and learned how a lot of enterprise education is done well. A lot of, best practice, but also observed a lot of really poor practice and really disappointing um, levels of, of, uh, activity around business support in a lot of places. Okay. And the, the,
0: the from the, the people that you're partnering with or just generally from both
1: the, the, the sort of lack of ambition that, uh, that there was from a lot of the teachers and, and people that I was training to, to run this education program. Mm-hmm. Um, largely stemming from um, a lack of confidence in knowing how to present how to run a business to to, to other people which is understandable but that's what the teaching resources were there for Mm. Um, but also it led, the the, the job meant that I visited lots of accelerators and incubators and and co-working spaces and business support places run by lots of different types of organizations. So a lot run by public sector bodies, a lot run by uh, universities, some run by companies like Google and things. And Mm. and then uh, being able to sort of observe which things they did were impactful to those businesses and which were a waste of time. Mm -hmm. And that, led on to me taking on additional responsibility in my job at UCL for setting up an enormous incubator for the University at the back of King's Cross in the new railway lands area that's been developed over the last 15 years as the right, new building okay. went up. And yeah, we, yeah. We, we had 20,000 square foot of um, office space to set up as an incubator. Yeah. And I launched that um, and then uh, managed it for UCL. Um, right at the beginning of its lifetime, it has a has a ten year life, and um, largely on the back of all of the experience I'd got from running, from going to all these other enterprise centres and right, seeing okay. really how important the, uh, the 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 programs that you run inside an enterprise centre or co-working space or incubator are. Mm. Um, so my my kind of my. Jobs sort of evolved. I actually still manage the Citrus Assay program for UCL. I do? <laughs> yeah, I do. And we're not growing it anymore, but I yeah. still look after it. Oh, right. Really? Um, so I still have the email address <laughs> and things I have to answer <laughs> teachers' queries occasionally, sort of, you right, know, okay. how do we do this what, and the other. Um,
0: when, when, um, when you're kind of, you know, giving teachers and people that tool pack to teach entrepreneurship, like. If they're not from, like you say, a background of, of entrepreneurship, if they're, you know, if they've just been a teacher... No, I say just been teacher. If they've been a teacher forever and obviously not started their own business and then they're they're trying to teach people how to do that, What do you find a challenge with that? Or, or, or if so, what was the biggest
1: sort of challenge around? So there was... There, was, there were three challenges. <laughs> One of them... Uh, questions that used to come up surprisingly so to to make the lemonade you sell on the on the stand you just juice the lemon add sugar and water and sell that right Right. it's not hard yeah and one of the questions that would come up quite often was where'd you get the sugar and i'd say well where'd you get the sugar in your staff tea room and they'd be like well tesco or something like that (laughs) and they'd say well If you like, you can get the sugar from Tesco. (laughs) Or you you can get the sugar from anywhere. You you don't have to go to a special sugar-providing place that is there just to provide sugar for businesses. So there was uh, a real baseline of misunderstanding as to things like where do businesses get their supplies from? If you're going to make a product and you're selling it to the public, do you have to get it from somewhere special? Is the sugar you buy in Tesco's not the right sugar for making for it's something you're gonna to sell to the public. For example,
0: I, I can I can I can understand that because like yeah. I, I know before I started my business it seemed like running a business was like a sort of mystical yeah, thing. Something that someone else did yeah, yeah, something someone else did that you couldn't sort of yeah. get yeah, into and, and then it, like, lots um, of barriers in the way. Yeah. yeah and lots yeah, of things exactly. that
1: you thought you just didn't know and wouldn't be able to know and, and that some other people did know and that's why they ran businesses and you didn't. Yeah, 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 yeah exactly. So, it, you know, it, it, it highlighted very early on these sort of barriers that people put in their own way as to yeah. why they can't do things. And, and then I'd get questions, a lot of questions about food hygiene and legislation because mm-hmm. obviously if you're selling any food or drink product to the public, you've got to make sure it's safe. Yeah. And I'd always explain that there's this really effective edible acid that you can use to sterilize things called citric acid and one of the best sources for citric acid uh, is is in fact lemons and so uh, provided the, the children have squeezed enough lemon juice over everything which they inevitably do um you're probably pro- pretty safe and okay. it, it, it's fairly unlikely that they'll make anybody ill um you know, even right, if they do okay. something unpleasant into the lemonade, um, it's not. interesting
0: i never that thought. Like. I never thought about it. Do you think that's why uh, like kids typically do lemonade stands? Because yeah, the, the like... reason they
1: do it is because <laughs> children are usually clever enough to realise that you can make quite a lot of money. You so, um, say, and it's easy, and it's in fact, well, the reason we chose it as a model is that firstly, it's very hard to, to lose money doing it um, right. and, and secondly it is very easy to do and and thirdly it's very safe you can't really make someone sick so yeah, yeah. you know it is a very very nice start of business if you're going to do that with kids uh, and interestingly the third thing that the teachers would often ask about is VAT which always used to make, really <laughs> make me laugh they'd worry about yeah, right. whether they would need to
0: somehow do some
1: sort of VAT Again, I can
0: understand it because it's one of those things, isn't it? That if you've just never had to think about and you've never... Well, as teachers,
1: it's not something they come across. So yeah, it it then becomes, you know, they're sort of starting to worry, what if these kids' lemonade businesses get really successful? Are we going to somehow come a cropper? Um, So again, I'd have to sort of go through some basics on on taxes with them and explain it wasn't going to be a problem. So... But the point, of, the point that I learned was that actually there are a lot of perceived barriers that people create in their own mind as to why mm. they can't start a business. Yeah. And then going to all these different enterprise centers and co-workspace incubators, accelerator programs, et cetera, I realized that really what they're all about and really the most important thing you can do when you're trying to give someone help with a business is remove the barriers that they perceive to them doing it. And if you think back to the stuff I was doing in the community and voluntary sector in Camden, what Mm. we'd done there was removed all the barriers because Mm. we'd proved, we'd done it for them. We knew, we'd shown them that the business model would work. Mm. We'd shown them how to do it. We'd removed all the barriers that people thought were in the way about doing those things with, you know, the dog biscuits or the salt scrubs or the food in Camden Market. By doing it and then demonstrating it to them. Yeah. And really... In my experience, removing the barriers to people creating businesses is is the kind of inspiration for what I do now with Bloomspace. But also there's another part of it, which is is giving people permission. Mm -hmm. Now, a lot Mm -hmm. of people come to me with a new business idea or an early business idea, and they're looking for some way of getting permission to do the thing they want to do.
0: It, okay, or well, someone to say it's all right to do that. Yes, or, for somebody right. to
1: turn around and say, yeah, you can do that, yeah, that's a good business idea. Go for it, and right. I'll help you if you want. Or come and run it from this office. Yeah. You know, it's it's not expensive. Come and join, and we'll yeah. help you. And, yeah. Remove all the barriers and then give them permission. And okay. that's actually the most important thing when you're trying to help people start new businesses or, or grow businesses is to say, yeah, that's a good idea. Do it and, and go for it. And <laughs> yeah, because you it. put up so
0: many like obstacles, like you
1: say, in your mind yeah, and you reasons not to do things and
0: well, fear. You can always and
1: think th- there's always, always a good reason not to do something. Yeah, so the yeah. easiest thing in the world is to come up with reasons not to do things, right? Yeah, That's easy. Yeah, yeah. And and I would always ha- have this with, with teachers. I would always say to them, um, you know, because they'd, they'd often sort of worry about, oh, can we take the children out of school to run a lemonade And blah, blah, blah. they come up with all these great reasons. And I'd say to them, look, all these things are, are problems and questions and, and things you've got to deal with. And they, they are, you've got, it's important. It's safety is important. All the rest of child safety, mm-hmm. food safety, et cetera. But actually... You know how to sort all those things out. You've done it before. You take them on school trips. Just do all that work. The easiest thing in the world is to think of a reason not to do something. And yeah. if we all <laughs> just thought of ways not to do things all the time, you know what we're trying to do is think of ways to do things because we want some learning outcomes for these kids. We want some education for them. Yeah. And the same thing with with business and entrepreneurs. There's always loads of reasons not to do something. It's Mm. the easiest thing in the world and people can make themselves feel very clever and very (laughs) um, impressive by thinking of lovely, great long lists of reasons why you shouldn't do stuff. But actually, if we all thought like that, we'd never (laughs) never do anything, we'd never get anywhere. No one would ever start anything. So really that's where setting up that massive incubator for the university which I can tell you was a real challenge because yeah. uh, UCL is is UK's biggest university and and had uh, had a lot of complexity to setting up a, a, a business space within a university. A um, right. very big challenge. What and kind it, of legals and things? Well? Legals, uh, security, health and safety, things to do with right. the estates, things to do with access, things to do with data security, um, right. all yeah. manner of stuff that you yeah. have to think about. When you're opening up a... Uh, you know, private university space or university space that's that's ordinarily not open to the public, mm. suddenly opening up to small businesses. Yeah. Um. And but you know, again, great. Come up with reasons not to do it. That's easy, right? Mm. If we came up for reasons not to do things all the flipping time, you know, you could you could easily. <laughs> save lots of money and, and go home and not do anything. Make I a business think. out of it. Well, yeah, <laughs> yeah, you can make a business telling people not not to do things. <laughs> but, you know, it, the idea was to to be able to connect small businesses together and make them um, make them into an ecosystem that was self-supporting. And mm-hmm. so I launched that for UCL, um, yeah. and then I left to start Bloom Space. And I, I opened um, the first... Bloom space site on Gower Street right next to UCL in fact um, with a so, with a view to providing space um, for, for spin outs and for people that wanted to access the talent inside the university because um, I still got an honorary role in UCL engineering faculty so Okay
0: so it wasn't like you were leaving to set up indirect competition next door There was no,
1: no competition involved <laughs> because the, the site I'd set up for the university was quite a long way away um, from oh, this half an hour walk away whereas mine was more like one minute walk away so oh, I see. Um, right. yeah they, they weren't really um, competing, no, but they were, <laughs> they were certainly in the same space. Um, yeah. and we started out Bloom Space, um, with about four or five or six AI companies, artificial intelligence and sort of machine learning companies that came out of UCL engineering faculty. So, um, one of the, the big ones that I always tell everyone out, cause there's a big number, um, is the one founded by Guillaume Bouchard called Bloomsbury AI and right. Bloomsbury AI made, um, algorithms that, uh, that would do sentiment analysis, so uh, they could read a document or a, a, a post online and then work out what it meant. Um, the AI mm. would be able to do that. Um, and Guillaume sold that company to Facebook for thirty million dollars. So right. okay. uh, that was that's our big one out of Blue nice. Space so far. There was another one. Uh, well, of course, the, the the reason Facebook bought it was primarily because Guillaume's team was. Very, very clever people, and they wanted to buy the algorithms and the team. Yeah, um, and now they use them to do sentiment analysis on the posts that you see on Facebook. So obviously, there were millions and millions and millions of posts on Facebook all the time, and yeah. there's no nobody, no people reading them, but they use algorithms and machine learning and uh, and artificial intelligence to read those posts and work out if something, if they need to flag something like criminal activity or terrorism, or something. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, clever people in that area, uh, and, and, and clever people came together in Bloomspace. Another one was um, uh, a company called Aiden AI. They sold to Twitter, um, right. which uh, was a sort of um, artificial intelligence-led marketing tool, um, right. and they sold that one to Twitter, Very undisclosed, well. but quite large sum. <laughs> um, so we've had some quite big businesses yeah exit. Through, yeah. through Bloom Space, but they also, all, they incubated with us for quite some time, um, mm-hmm. and you know we helped them find new staff. We helped them uh, with their sort of uh, team building kind of activities and things like that mm-hmm. in, in the office, and we obviously provided some pretty low cost space for them to grow in central London. Yeah. Um, but the 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 key thing back to what we were saying earlier is the the idea of removing one of the barriers to people starting a business because mm. office space, especially in central London is exceptionally expensive. So, mm. um, you know, one of the barriers was just finding an office and we, we've took away that barrier. Mm. Um, and then we sort of developed our own accelerator program, uh, back in 2017. And we, we did an eight week uh, accelerator program with eight startups, which is really successful quite a few of them carried on incubating with us afterwards and grew yeah um and that pulled together a whole group of really nice people who helped contribute as mentors to the startups um, right yeah on an ongoing basis and and, you know a lot of them are still doing that with me and kind of helping the startups that we incubate
0: so bringing your social enterprise type Love to, and, to
1: yeah to, to the world. You know, creating decent opportunities, really valuable and interesting opportunities for people to contribute, not necessarily in a paid way, um, yeah. because they want to and they get a lot from it, and they they you know they enjoy yeah. it and they feel fulfilled through it. And, and of course, yeah. the startups benefit because yeah, um, you know, they get these amazing mentors. So um,
0: yeah, yeah. I've just realised that um, that you once gave me permission as well because uh, I remember on that uh, we, we were. Met on a, yeah, I a networking place, didn't we? And we were doing networking. We were, and uh, I think you were the one of the first, if not the first person that I ran the idea of sort of niching my photography towards industrial photography by. And you were like, "Yeah, that's a great idea." <laughs> so, <yeah>. thank
1: you. <laughs> Luckily, it's worked out. <laughs> yeah, it's,
0: yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I yeah, mean,
1: yeah. but that's a good example. Um, it. The, that you probably had a dozen really strong reasons not to do what you have now achieved oh, at yeah. the time. And if not more. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, probably a hundred reasons. And so you were, you were trying to, um, rationalize in your mind, um, what it was you wanted to do with your, uh, conscious mind, uh, uh telling you all the, all the sort of, uh, reasons why you shouldn't do it. And
0: yeah, yeah.
1: yeah I think that's the thing. You need that tipping point where, you sweep away, but you shrink away, shrink down, and then sweep away all of the reasons that you shouldn't do something, and then get on with it. Yeah, and yeah. someone giving you that that permission and that that kind of uh, motivation and that that yeah. bit of um, positivity is essential.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No, thank you for that. Oh, that's all right. <laughs> but, um, yeah. how, how did you end up on that walk in Malvern? <laughs> Good question. So the, um,
1: the, the, the journey to Malvern um, started with uh, being able to afford... Because I lived in central London, and it's, as you don't need to tell you, it's very, very expensive, um, and I managed to... Uh, well, I realised I could afford to buy a flat in Malvern, so we bought right, yeah. a flat, and and suddenly it was like, oh, this is a lovely place, and so we would come up every weekend with the Basset Hound in the car <laughs> and uh, and and hang out in Malvern for the weekend, and then drive back to this this not very great rented flat in London, and right. and, and do that regularly. And Then the weekend sort of extended from Friday to Sunday <laughs> to to be Thursday to Monday and all the way. Yeah. And then it got to the point where it was like, well, you know, we'd we'd. We've only got two or three nights in London and we're renting this expensive. flat. what's the point? And then the tipping point was the dog. <laughs> so, one Friday or one, it would have been a Tuesday, but we were preparing to, to get back in the car and loading the car up and preparing to drive back to London. And we couldn't find the dog. And <laughs> We we looked all around the flat for the dog, and she was hiding. (laughs) And she knew what we were doing was getting in the car to go back to London. She didn't want to go. And we thought, well, neither did I. I don't want to go back to London either. Why are we renting this expensive (laughs) flat in London? I don't even want to be there. So, um, you know, again, I I did the spreadsheets, and I, I made the lists, and I looked at all the reasons not to give up the flat in London and then all the reasons to give up the flat yeah. in London and realised that we could just save a lot of money by just going to London when we needed to for the businesses oh, yeah. so we still the office on Gower Street was running nicely I'd employed a, a part-time person student from the university next door to look after the things the day-to-day things mm-hmm. I didn't need to be there every single day yeah um, so um, the real the, the tipping point for, for giving up the flat was the dog um, but then working uh, the, then the real thing was was Having the opportunity to open Bloom Space in the Grange in, mm-hmm. in Great Morgan. And that has stemmed from uh, some meetings with um, the economic development team in the council. I'd, I'd gone to Adrian Burden's Innovation Festival and had mm-hmm. a trip round um, the Morgan factory. And mm-hmm. I met um, this uh, team member from the um, council's uh, enterprise. Uh, the, team. And, and it, it, I can't remember her surname. It was Chris is her first name. She she sort of came up to me in the networking. She said, well, what do you do? And I told her what I did. And she said, oh, have you ever thought about doing that in right. I was, you know, I told her <laughs> I run a co-working space and business incubator and we do support and mentoring and blah, blah, blah. Yeah. She said, do you ever thought of doing that in Malvern? And I thought, no, I haven't. <laughs> and I thought, what on earth is this lady asking me about? Yeah. And I thought, well, how would that work in, in Malvern? I, I just saw, saw it as this beautiful town where I came for the weekends to get oh, away from London. Yeah, yeah. And the idea planted a seed in my head. And mm-hmm. um, it it ate away at my brain for <laughs> several months. And then I thought, well, I've got to pursue this. What did this lady mean? So I emailed her and said, you know, it was nice to meet you. And back in October, whenever it was, and... I remember it was the first week of January um, and we, we'd spent the whole week in Morven because it snowed and things. So we stayed up. Right. Up yeah. And and I thought, well, I'll email this. Way. So she she me back and said, oh, yeah, you should talk to um, my manager, Simon Smith. So next day I met with Simon, had an hour <laughs> and a half meeting with Simon, had a lovely chat, really nice, lots of detail and lots of positive yeah, uh, you know, positive thoughts and comments and communication, and and I thought, well, this is working really you. Well. And he said, yeah, you should come and see this building and, and see if it would make a good co working space. So the day after that, I then went <laughs> to see the Grange. It was very quick. Went yeah. round with with the economic, uh, uh, went round with the estates manager, um, and and thought, well, this building's lovely. It, it would it needs a lot of doing to it, but it, I could see the layout worked and uh, had the things we needed in it as offices. Yeah. So I thought, well, well, let's go ahead, and and that <laughs> that was the permission I needed to give myself to then not be in London all the time. Yeah. So, yeah. Amazing. And yeah. uh, so the business then launched up here um, in uh, September 2018, exactly two years after we'd started in London, mm. um, and we we refurbished the the ground floor of the Grange. Um, and through a lot of networking with like the small business forum and going on the networking events like the way we we met, yeah, um, I had a network of people, some of whom became the early members at the Grange and in yeah. and, and Bloomspace and, and helped us right from the beginning create a kind of community of people who are either. Uh, you know, running their own business or working for somebody else's business or growing a business. Um, mm-hmm. And yeah, it all kicked off there, September 2016. <laughs> and it's has nice. been, had people in it ever since.
0: Yeah, yeah. And um, yeah, no, and it's a cool space. <laughs>
1: well, it, I it, think there's 13 or 14 rooms on the ground floor. They're all different sizes, all different styles, all different yeah. um, kind of feel to each room. And, yeah. you know, we've got rooms for private meetings, room for teams, room for, training in or whatever these people are doing. But one of the things I decided to do quite early on was just be really adaptable. So I kept on getting people who were therapists coming to me saying, Oh, do you have rooms to rent? And mm. I would say to them, well, um, we don't really, but you know, you we could see, and I think by the time a third one had come along, I thought, well, wait a minute, <laughs> I've got to create a room for therapists. I'm like, that. what am I doing? So I converted one of the offices to a room that would be suitable for therapists. So yeah. we put a couple of nice couches in there and decorated slightly differently. So it was then a room where people could could meet their clients and run their therapy. So we had a nutritionist there um, for a while, and, and she'd see her clients in there, and we'd have a lady that was a, a um, uh, she was a clinical psychologist, so she used mm. to do CBT train uh, CBT uh, sessions with people, so cognitive behavioural therapy and, and mm. so talking therapies, things like that. And they would meet their clients and, and see them in the in that in that room. So right. by adapting it to what was needed at the time, we we, we changed yeah. that room really very simply into being a space they they worked from. of course those two therapists now aren't actually members and they've they've gone off to the other things so we've now converted back to being an office Mm -hmm. then then somebody came along and she said oh i make um lace gloves um and i need a space for a studio can i rent this room so she joined and then we converted the room into a workshop (laughs) for her so it had sewing machines in it and lace cutting tables and all these other things yeah and she had all of her Stuff in there from making her, uh, her products and then ship them out from there. Yeah, yeah. Um, she's now grown her business to such an extent that she needs her own workshop, so she's moved yeah. out and we've now turned it back into an office again. Um, yeah, so yeah. being adaptable was one of the things that I figured was important and seems to have worked very well.
0: It is important, isn't it? And it sounds like it comes from your general approach <laughs> of like being positive and you removing, know, like barriers. removing barriers. Yeah, because yeah, you're you sort yeah. of not, you're not. It would be easy for someone to say, "No, we don't. We don't have a therapy room. No, it's yeah. not what we do. You know, yeah. we're like we do this, yeah. and not sort mm-hmm. of listening to what people
1: need." Well, and, and you know, usually looking at something from a sort of sideways perspective where you realise that actually you can do it um, is you know, not not everybody does that, and I mm. try to. So um, yeah. yeah, most of the things that we want to do, we can. Yeah, um, I, I mean, there's, you know, we've we've had some quite. Nice success with businesses scaling in in BloomSpace in Melbourne, and one in particular um, called Hanley Payments. Um, the business came the, the, the chap that founded it, Garrett, came with really the beginning, the, the very beginnings of the business, and it was really a, a, an idea at that point about having a mm-hmm. payments platform. And he needed to firm it up and, and work out what market he was going to attack. And, and he looked at um, lots of different markets, and then it. Realised that the um, the lettings market, letting agents, would be a good market to, to look at. And I said, "Well, you've mm-hmm. got to go and do some research. You've got to talk to some letting agents. Then yeah. find out what they use at the moment. What problems yeah. are you going to solve for them with this product?" And um, you know, to do that is a challenge. To when someone tells you to do that, you, you know, oh gosh, now I've got to, you know, I've, <laughs> yeah, this is, yeah. I've got you know, I've Still got to go and talk bit, to people. Gosh. Yeah. Um, and it just so happened that a school friend of mine, um, it turns out, lives in in Great Malvern, right. um, which is just outside. And he runs one of the letting agents um, in Great <laughs> Malvern. So I rang him and said, Chris, um, I know I haven't seen you for 25 years, but could you do me a favour? Um, I've got this person that needs to talk to a letting agent. Would you mind just having a coffee with him? So he did. Again, you know, suddenly... Barriers had disappeared from yeah, Gareth yeah. growing his business. And it went from there. Um, and actually, he's a really good success story because we then managed to get him uh, a bit of early stage uh, loan money from um, British Startup Bank with his business plan that we kind of put together. Uh-huh. Um, and then that led on. Well, he then created the first job for a, for a chap called Brendan, who's his sort of in-house coder, guy came from Hereford. Um and you know coding jobs are not that common in Melbourne, so it was yeah. quite nice to be able to uh, for Garrett to have been able to create that job there yeah, yeah. And, and then then we got um we got Garrett an investor from from China um right. she needed a visa so we, right. we got her an innovator visa from uh, one of the um sponsoring bodies that we're members of in London. Yeah. Um, so she came over and became a co-founder in the business, invested in it and, <laughs> uh, and helped it grow even further. And I think wow. Garrett now has six staff. So, wow. um, okay, yeah, it's been a, a good story of uh, an idea that had uh, a lot of potential and uh, a lot of uh, scope to work, but needed to focus. And then, mm needed a lot of things to grow so gary mm-hmm. and i worked together quite a bit and would be mentoring him and coaching him through it mm-hmm. and giving him ideas and, and sort of guiding him with different things and then doing those intros to those investors and sort of facilitating yeah. that and you know again knocking down some of the barriers and getting them out of his way so that his yeah. hard work and his motivation and his uh, intelligence and 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 the the value of his idea could come through and mm. he's now made a fantastic business and it's growing all the time so Brilliant. he's now gone into uh, a third round of funding with a partner organization and they're growing growing rapidly so
0: cool yeah. that's excellent okay so um yeah so i mean I, I guess yeah we should say that like you know when you become a member of bloom space you don't just get office space and uh And and a printer, but you you, you get some support and...
1: So this is one of the things I learned when I've travelled all these different countries and looked at all these different enterprise centres and co-workers, incubators, etc. And and a lot of them look incredibly fancy and they've had lots of money spent on them. I mean, the yeah. one that I set out for UCL, the, UCL spent two million pounds just doing the interior. Right, yeah, And that yeah, didn't yeah. B- even buy any furniture. That was just the, the wires <laughs> and the... I know, the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, you
0: know,
1: that, was, that was just the, you know, the, the doors and the, <laughs> the walls and the, the, the wiring, basically. Yeah, yeah. um, I mean, only a university could spend that amount of money on something <laughs> that was an empty building. But anyway... The, 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 Going around, looking at all these different places and realizing actually what tends to happen is people, um, is a lot of it's about image and a lot of it's about being looking flashy. And if you look at particularly some of the most flashy accelerator uh, programs that you see in London and, and places like California, um, you realize that actually it's, there's a lot of flashiness, but actually mm. what's behind it isn't that substantial right, Okay, yeah. you can make you know the fanciest looking office with the green wall and the plants growing out of it that die every three months and need replacing and the table football and the ping pong table and the bean bags and the brightly colored signage and all this stuff but unless you've actually got a decent program of support for businesses that you run once you've opened this premises mm-hmm. you've really just made a fancy looking office mm-hmm. and that's it yeah, and then the yeah. businesses inside it have got to look after themselves yeah now that's fine yeah, there's plenty of really cool co-working spaces where that's all people want they want mm-hmm. to pay their monthly amount and they just have an office there's nothing wrong with that yeah. but i wanted to run an incubator where we could help businesses plan start and grow that's uh-huh. what we do Yeah. Now we have people who use the office just for co-working space. It's fantastic. They have a lovely office. They come in, they make a nice part of the community and they enjoy working from our space because it's beautiful and it's functional and everything's sorted out for them. It's all included in their monthly membership and they just come in and work and then they go away again. Mm They don't worry about anything. That's fine. Mm -hmm. But for those that are growing a business and scaling something, they want mentoring, they want coaching, they want a network Mm -hmm. and actually That's one of the most important things: is getting an instant network of people that can that you can tap into to help your business. Mm -hmm. So when you're starting out in business, a lot of the time people feel very much like they're doing it all on their own, Uh, and they kind of are. But that's not necessarily; it's not the best way to do it, and it makes it very stressful. And once you realize actually what you need to do is talk to loads of people, network, 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 and get to know. You know, that's why we were networking when we were doing, you know, with the small business forum, and. You know, once you've got a network, it makes life a lot easier and makes the business the more successful. It, make, it increases the chance the business is going to be successful. Yeah. And so one of the things that Bloomspace can offer is that network of people. Now, there's a big network of people in London, mm-hmm. increasingly large network of people in Great Malvern, mm-hmm. maybe angel investors, maybe Groups of investors, it might be experts in certain topics. It could be people providing follow-on space for once. They've Mm. grown out of the space we've got at the Grange. It could be suppliers, customers, people to go and test the idea on, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And that's what I spend all my flipping time putting together mentally and and, uh, socially (laughs) and physically is all these different things and just connecting people together in a way that means we could add a lot more value than if we were just running serviced offices or yeah. a co-working yeah. space. Um, and that's not because it's necessarily a particularly fabulous business, <laughs> commercially right. speaking. It's just because I like doing it. Yeah. <laughs> it's as simple as that. <laughs> it's something well, like, that it makes my brain work. <laughs> yeah. Well that's it. You know, I mean we you know it, it's it's so important when people run their own business that they like doing it because you're going to yeah. do it a lot of your time yeah. you know it takes up a lot of your time and mental yeah. energy and i just really like um that connecting people together i i love yeah. hearing about other people's businesses and yeah, yeah. um you know <laughs> understanding <laughs> <So>. <laughs> them um, yeah, yeah, that's why we're here but you know the this one of the reasons i tested out so many different business ideas is because I just wanted to know how they worked
0: yeah,
1: yeah. <laughs> uh, and I'm quite nosy as well. So that's quite, you know, another element yeah, is yeah. just like, like working this stuff out. And, uh, I guess it stems all the way back from my days as a scientist when I wanted to work out how things worked. Um, and it, it, it kind of comes through with the, uh, the research I did with all those businesses and then bringing that all together and, and making a successful incubator. Um, so yeah, the, the package includes that um, mm. as well as the offices. And interestingly, yeah. now we've we've got some rooms in the Grange which are um, which really cost quite a lot to get up to office standard. So we thought, right. well, these would be perfect for artists because they've got okay. yeah. um, wooden plywood floors and 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 the. They make they've got nice lights and things like that, mm. and I had a series of artists come to me saying, "Oh, have you got any rooms we could rent for artists?" And I thought, "Well, those rooms would be great." So yeah. <laughs> rather than refurbish them and spend money that we then have to recoup from somewhere, I thought, "Well, yeah, let's just just make it really inexpensive and give it yeah, give yeah. to artists who can then use them and, and create their their businesses in them." And you know th- that brings a whole different energy to the group of people that share the building because mm-hmm. um, every time somebody joins, uh, they bring a new element of, of energy, a new network, a new uh, uh, set of connections and a new uh, kind of, um, a new uh, inspiration f- into the building. Now it turns yeah. out that the, the artist that's going to come and move in, John Taylor, turns out that chatting with him recently, we were preparing the room and it turns out he used to design, mm-hmm. Um, labels for wine bottles well right. I knew he was an illustrator and a, and a painter but I didn't know he'd done product design yeah. uh, and you kind of think oh that's fantastic we're going to have yeah. a, an artist who's got experience with with a, you know <laughs> making product design uh, yeah, and yeah. packaging yeah. and, and labelling so uh, he'll be brilliant he'll be a really nice addition to the community of people there because We've got people in the Grange that... Well, we had this in London, actually, and it, the demographic is about the same in both offices. And it was it about a third of people that work for big companies like the BBC or Xerox or something. About a third of people running a consultancy or some kind of business that is theirs but probably isn't going to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, like maybe an accountant or a therapist or somebody. Or things yeah. or like that. And then about another third doing some kind of scaling tech business mm-hmm. who were the ones I tend to work with and... With mentoring and connections, and help them mm. with investment and things. And um, we also have people who uh, are there just because, you know, maybe they're studying. And there's there's one one lady's got doing a theology degree, and she can't work from home, so she's she's working in the office. Um, and we've got people from non profits and from social enterprises and charities as well. So mm. having that nice mixture is another thing I wanted to create because yeah. one of the things I noticed when I went around looking at all these other spaces is that they, they tend to work um, in verticals or in, and be like silos. So you, you'd have all techies in one incubator, all creatives in another, right, okay. all artists yeah, yeah. or all, uh, you know, fashion in another, which yeah. is fine. if That's what people want. That's there. But um, it tends to be um, less of a rich mixture of activity going on and, and less of a rich network of people if you um if you have one one flavor mm-hmm. um so having different flavors of business and different types of organization is something yeah, i've yeah. always thought is yeah. important and we've achieved you know i've achieved it really well in the grange and yeah, yeah. it's nice to have a mixture and then we'll now as i say we'll have artists so
0: brilliant that'd be good too brilliant well we are, we've smashed through the uh, the hour one hour barrier, <laughs> which Thanks, is man. which is great. Uh, that was really uh, really interesting. Um, so yeah, people come and check you out at Bloom dot space, see uh, see the space, uh, connect with you on LinkedIn, Jack Run. uh Instagram Bloom Incubator, and Twitter Bloom Malvern. Lovely and. Um, yeah, thank you very much for coming over and, you, uh, and sharing that with us. That was yeah. brilliant. And I'm going to try and be self-aware of my own barriers and uh, smash those down. <laughs> you want any
1: help, just ask. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> thank
0: you. Excellent. <laughs> Cheers, Jack. No worries. Thank you. You've been listening to the Thriving Three Counties podcast with me, Dan Barker. You can find links to all the episodes and show notes over at com forward slash podcast. If you've enjoyed today's show, please head over to iTunes and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show and connect more people in the region. Thank you very much for your time listening. I hope you've enjoyed it and we'll see you next time.